Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 84 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The 2200 Mile Diagnosis, an interview with Julianne Hartley. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Julianne Hartley. Julianne Hartley is a 29-year-old music therapist from New Hampshire. In 2012, Ms. Hartley suddenly fell ill with an extremely high fever. She then noticed a rash on the back of her arm. Her father confirmed that although it wasn't a bullseye rash, it was the same rash that he had when he tested positive for Lyme disease. Ms. Hartley went to her doctor, the same doctor that diagnosed her father, but he told her that she probably didn't have Lyme disease, but instead had a virus. After that, Ms. Hartley fell extremely ill. She had joint fatigue, insomnia, joint pain, and her bowels were paralyzed. She went from being a highly athletic runner on her college cross-country team to not being able to walk across the room or walk on a hike. At the insistence of our naturopath, Ms. Hartley submitted to a Lyme test. She tested positive. She treated her Lyme with antibiotics and herbs. Ms. Hartley credits Lyme with turning her life into a gift. Hey, Julianne, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rich. So thank you for joining us. And can you please share with our audience who you are? For example, can you share with us where you live and what kinds of things were you doing before you began to show the symptoms of your tick disease? Yeah. Okay. So I'm Julianne Hartley. I am a music therapist from the Southern New Hampshire area. And before my illness, I was valedictorian of my college class. I was a very classic overachiever. I was Congratulations. a girl on my yeah, right. Thank you. I worked really hard. Didn't come easy, but I, I was able to work hard. I was able to, to pull the all-nighters that needed to happen and do the work that needed to happen. I was the fastest girl on my college cross-country running team. I did a lot of triathlons. I was very athletic, and I really, that was definitely part of my identity. And after graduating college, I was starting up this uh, music therapy practice in New Hampshire, at a local community music school, focusing on working with children with disabilities and children who had experienced pretty severe trauma. Yeah, and that was just getting going. And I was actually doing really well when I first was bit. So tell us about the bite. And then I want to talk to you about what you knew about ticks prior to your tick bite. So the bite was tricky. And I know this with a lot of people who end up with chronic Lyme. Sometimes the, the bite isn't always a black and white situation. Back in 2012, I experienced, all of a sudden, I got this 104 degree fever that just came out of nowhere. I was having dinner with my family after work, uh, after work at my music therapy practice, and I ended up having to just leave dinner suddenly because I was just quickly becoming very weak and ill. And I ended up, by the time I drove home, by the time I got home, I pretty much it was delirious and I don't remember too much other than that what was reported to me so my mother came home quickly after and took care of me throughout the night while being on the phone with the doctors and I was literally delirious with fever all throughout the night I don't remember anything but they were able to break it with Tylenol. We, we were talking about your tick bite experience now prior to you having this severe fever that caused you to leave your family dinner do you remember having been bitten by a tick? No. So, well, let's, let's, let's explore that for a little bit. So you're, you're, you graduate from college, you start your music therapy practice and tell us about why you started a music therapy practice and why that became your professional passion. Yeah, that's a really good question. I've always liked working with people and helping people. And I've always connected with music in a way. 
I didn't have a very happy childhood growing up. There was a lot of verbal abuse and trauma in my household. And music for me was always this amazing outlet where I felt I could finally connect. And it really spoke to me in a meaningful way. When I was little, maybe I thought I wanted to be a psychologist because I liked talking to people and building relationships with people. Or maybe I'd be a speech therapist and work with someone in that way. But when I was a junior in high school, I ended up job shadowing with a music therapist. And I saw an eight-year-old boy take his first words using music with a music therapist. And it was such a profound experience that from then on, although I first went to college for speech therapy, I knew ultimately I needed to do music therapy because I felt like that was the most efficient way of rewiring the brain. So share with us how music therapy would help someone who is facing whatever challenges they were facing. So it totally depends on the challenge. So in music therapy, we use music to work on non-musical goals. So for instance, if someone is having a speech problem, you can use different music therapy interventions that are based off of neuroscience and just based off the way that sound and musical elements interact with the brain. And sometimes those musical elements help organize the brain to help the articulation and the motor control of a speech sound. If it's in the case of someone who's experienced, so a lot of my work is with children who have experienced extreme trauma and abuse. Like I've worked with children that have been tied to beds, raped or drugged in order to feed someone's addiction. And for them, they've experienced pretty extreme neurological trauma as a result of their abuse. And uh, usually that's in the executive functioning department. So their ability to um, inhibit their behaviors, so to stop running away or their ability to maintain anger or like maintain their emotional control, usually that's inhibited by the brain trauma. And so music therapy in that sense, uh, we can use techniques to help rewire those emotional regulation areas of the brain and rewire the communication areas of the brain that might help them uh, express themselves more efficiently. So Julianne, because of the experiences that you had during your childhood and because of your use of music as a vehicle to help you to overcome your challenges, you knew that you could help other people who were going through challenges through music therapy. Well, I hoped, right? And, and I was successful. I was very successful. And, and, you, and you used your vast talents through uh, your educational pursuits uh, and became the number one student in your college class. And you did, in fact, pursue a career as a musical therapist, correct? Yeah. So... How long were you into your, your chosen profession and how many people were you helping before you had this experience in 2012? Oh my goodness. Okay, so I was only, a, I was just starting out my practice back in 2012 when I was first fit. Yeah, so it was just really still beginning. But so now you finally achieved this goal. You, you, you had your childhood challenges. You understood organically that music was a vehicle for helping people overcome those challenges and overcome abuse that they had to deal with. You dedicated your time and energy into an educational experience that resulted in you being qualified to now help people in that way. You start your career and then you get sick. Yeah, it's a bummer way to start a career. So how did this, how did this now illness that resulted first in you getting sick and having a terrible fever in 2012, how did it develop and, and, and how did these symptoms impact your career? Okay, so I was one of those people that when I got Lyme, 
it was a slow, gradual, besides for the big boom of that 104 degree fever that came and went for a week and, you know, had me really down. It was a slow progression, meaning it was kind of symptom after symptom after symptom after symptom just slowly being added on to a point where you kind of hit, you know, the bucket finally fills up and it, it spills over. All right. So let's focus on how those symptoms were developing. But before we do that, I want to walk back to your big boom moment, as you described it. You went through this really bad experience, and I'm assuming you went to visit with a doctor after, after the high fever? Yeah. And unfortunately, I was not taken very seriously. And what do you mean by that? So I had this really high fever that came and went for a week that really knocked me down. And when I, after a week of this happening and, you know, kind of being on the phone with the doctor, I finally went in to see him and I was like, you know, do you think maybe I can have a Lyme test? Because I, at this point, a big rash had developed on the back of my arm. It looked like a bite of some sort. And it was the same mark my father had when he got Lyme disease uh, just a few months earlier in the year. Um, and he had a very similar immune reaction. And uh, my doctor at the time denied me a Lyme test and just said, no, I, I think this is just a virus. Besides, you don't want to be on antibiotics anyways. And I just, I didn't, I didn't push him or pressure him anymore. I just was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, Juliana, I'm, I'm, I'm already anxious about your story and we've just begun. Let's focus for a minute on your dad. You said that your dad had, had very similar symptoms, which you believe to be Lyme disease. Why did you believe your dad's symptoms, which predated your symptoms, were Lyme disease? We, have the, we had the same doctor. He gave my father a Lyme disease test right away, and he was CDC positive. So your dad had the same symptoms as you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The doctor mm -hmm. gave your dad a Lyme test, but wouldn't give you a Lyme test, mm -hmm. even though you had the same symptoms and he diagnosed your dad with Lyme disease? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why? It's pretty messed up. I don't, you know, if we had an answer, then I wouldn't be in this situation. Well, but Julian, we, we actually did an interview last weekend with a woman who shared a very similar story with us. And what she believed was that her gender played a role in her diagnostic challenges. Do you believe your gender played a role? And if so, how? Absolutely. I was brought up to be agreeable, especially in a household where there was, we were always walking on eggshells. So the more agreeable you could be, the less likely there would be a, an aggression outburst. So I was definitely brought up to not push buttons. And I, you know, part of this is what made me be Val Victorian or the fastest runner. I always thought if I could just do the right thing and do it the best, then, then, then I would be loved and appreciated. And, and I think as women, we're kind of brought up to just be agreeable. And that gives us the, or is supposed to give us the greatest sense of self-worth if, if we're loved and appreciated by all. Well, but what about, the, what about the way the doctor treated you? Because there were only two distinctions between you and your dad. The first was your age, and the second was your gender. So it's not just the way that you accepted the bad assistance or the poor assistance, but it's also the way the doctor offered it to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I think this is still me and my agreeable nature. I like to always say, oh, it must be my fault here. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, there must have been some sort of either gender bias or 
some sort of bias on, on stress factors or something, uh, potentially based off the fact that I was a college student or was coming out of college, there was definitely something going on and it's clearly not appropriate. You now have this belief that you have Lyme disease, but you have a doctor telling you that you probably don't or he's not recommending the traditional treatment. How'd that make you feel? Well, at the time, I decided to just let it go. And mentally in my head, I was like, no, clearly this isn't Lyme disease. The doctor must know. And, you know, he even said to my face so throughout, throughout the next three years as I tried to figure out what was going on, anytime I went in to say like, hey, can we do any tests? Can we do anything? The same response I'd always get was, I see sick people. You're not sick. And he would say things like, there's a lot of stress right now. You're coming out of college. You're probably just anxious or depressed. And those were the same responses I got for years trying to figure out what was going on. So at the time, I really didn't think it was Lyme disease. I trust the doctor and I thought, okay, well, he must be right here. So now you, you have this bad initial experience with the doctor and you said that your symptoms were developing little by little by little until ultimately your bucket became saturated. Share with us how your symptoms developed. Yeah, so it started with extreme fatigue. So keep in mind, I was running half marathons. I was competing in half marathons. I was running in triathlons. I was um, hiking all the time. I was very athletic. So after this fever in 2012, I went down to a point where like walking was really difficult and exhausting. And even just doing my music therapy practice was physically exhausting. And also at the same time, I stopped sleeping. And this is another really classic Lyme symptom as I was developing this insomnia. And then slowly around all the same time, I was developing severe joint pain to the point where my joints were actually just locking up. Julian, how long was the period of time between you running marathons and running various events to the point where you're having trouble walking and doing your work as a therapist? Oh, within months. I mean, it was definitely within months, but again, so. For your listeners to understand, they need to understand that I am a very persistent human being and I will not stop what I'm doing until, until I physically can no longer do it. And so even though it was looking back, I realized it was pretty extreme from the beginning. I pushed through for years to get to that point where the bucket finally filled up too much. But realistically, the bucket was very full the entire time. Your immune system is being further compromised by your failure to change your behavior and your symptoms are developing. And I'm assuming you're going back to doctors because you're getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And just the same doctor too. And this whole time we know what was most frustrating about it is I was developing a lot of symptoms and you know, like I, you know, like the arthritis, the fatigue, all these things. And I think at one point I was able to give, get him to give me like a, a thyroid, like a TSH test and a vitamin D test or something like that was all I was able to convince him to do. And looking back on it, there was such a prime period for early intervention there that was missed. So why didn't you change doctors? Why did you stay with the same guy who was treating you differently than he treated your dad when you knew in your gut you had Lyme disease? Well, and so like I said, at this point, I still 
was very convinced that the doctor was right and I didn't have Lyme disease. And I figured, okay, maybe this is just stress in my head. So I did make a lot of lifestyle changes throughout this period Likewise. that helped to a degree. So I, you know, in my head, I was thinking, well, you know, if I stop eating sugar, the arthritis gets a little bit less bad. And I was able to start hiking a little bit again. So I figured, okay, maybe this is within my control. Maybe this is just stress and just diet. And so I tweaked that for years and years and years, thinking that was ultimately what it was. So Jillian, you described yourself as somebody who's persistent, meaning you would just keep fighting through the challenges. Were you, uh, were you using those persistent personality traits to explore the other possibilities that may be causing you to be sick? Oh, absolutely. So during this time period, I ended up getting my nutritional therapy certificate through NTA, the Nutritional Therapy Association, figuring that this must be diet related. I had had a lifetime history of also digestive issues. So I figured maybe this is all just the tipping point of some sort of digestive issue. Did your digestion issue protocol help you to overcome your symptomology? No. In fact, there were two of us in my NTA class that had very similar extreme digestive issues and all of these like different, how do I put this, ailments in many different systems of the body. And uh, ultimately both ended up being diagnosed with Lyme disease. So although the diet did help to a certain degree, where maybe, it, like I said, it got me from having completely locked joints to a point where I could walk around, I couldn't run again, but I could walk. It did to a help to a certain degree, but it obviously wasn't the, the final cure. So Julian, you're, you're, you're going from being a hyper-athletic, hyper-successful young woman to now walking around arthritically and barely able to perform your professional responsibilities. What was going on that caused you not to look outside of this one doctor who was treating you very differently than your dad, despite the similar symptomology? I was really concerned about being seen as a hypochondriac. I was really concerned about it truly being all in my head. And, you know, also at this point to be, so this is probably around like 2015 now, let's say we're at where I'm really struggling to get through my work days. I'm really struggling with all this. So at this point, I didn't trust the doctor. And at this point, I didn't trust any doctors. At this point, I was really feeling like, Clearly, the doctors have no answers for me if this is what I'm getting every time I go. And what I was getting every time I go was like, you're not sick. And so I decided at this point, like it was really my responsibility to do something on my own. What triggered that change? Because you went through this long period of time where you were getting sicker and sicker and sicker, but you still believed that it was just all in your head. So what finally triggered you to disbelieve the doctors and, and lose faith in the system and now take another step? Um, well, I think it was the nutritional therapy certification, learning so much about nutrition and realizing also how much little doctors understood about nutrition. It made me kind of step back from that belief that like doctors are God and, and they know everything and it allowed me to kind of take more responsibility for myself. And ultimately what I decided to do was to make a major lifestyle change. And this was the way of kind of putting to a test is this in my head or like, am I actually maybe really unhappy with my profession? Am I actually really still living in a whole bunch of stress? Do I still have a whole bunch of, you know, childhood trauma that's still kind of pulling me down, those memories pulling me down. And I decided to leave my work, 
and I hiked the Appalachian Trail for six months. And this is when I really put to test, like, is this just stress and is this just what's in my head or is this something real? So before we get to the Appalachian Trail, and I'm really excited to explore that portion of your journey with you, I'd like to talk with you about how your declining health was impacting the other parts of your life. You just shared with us that it was having an impact on your capacity to engage in the kinds of physical activities that you would engage in, and it was now having an impact on your capacity to do your job. How else was it affecting you? Meaning, were you losing friends? Were there friends who were doubting you? How is this impacting you socially? Well, luckily, I've got really great community members around me. So my community members all believed me when I was saying that I wasn't feeling well. And they were very supportive throughout all of this. I did have a few family members. They were very convinced that this was all because I wasn't subscribing to certain beliefs that they subscribed to. So um, they thought this really came from a place of not processing emotional trauma, like childhood trauma and or past life trauma or um, not believing hard enough in, in certain spiritual aspects or praying hard enough. So there was a lot of you are responsible for your own illness right now because you're choosing not to. I had, I had family members accuse me of being sick because I was choosing to be sick and not just telling myself I'm healthy. So they were supporting the belief, the false belief that you weren't in fact physically sick, that you were emotionally sick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about your dad? He had the same symptoms you had. He went to the same doctor you went to. He got a diagnosis of Lyme disease and was treated for that. How was he reacting to your developing symptomology? Well, from the very beginning, he was like, you need a Lyme test. You need a Lyme test. You need a Lyme test. My father and I at the time, though, did not. We were pretty estranged. So I didn't want to hear anything he also had to say to me at that time. So the further I could distance myself, at the time it was also better. Like, what does my father know? At that point, he wasn't a respectful, like he wasn't a character in my life I really respected. So although he was like, you definitely need a Lyme test, um, I wasn't open to those ideas. So let's fast forward to this journey that you're going to go on on the Appalachian Trail. And this is going to be, I guess, an opportunity for you to determine whether or not you are physically sick or you're emotionally sick. You're going to pull all the stresses out of your life. You're going to go to one part of the Appalachian Trail and you're going to go on your walk in the woods like Bill Bryson. And you're going to, you're going to now determine whether or not you're physically or emotionally sick. Right. And, you know, it was such a, the first thing I'll just say right away, it became really evident to me that there was something physiologically wrong with my body. Although I was very persistent and I ended up finishing the entire Appalachian Trail, I had many, many, many challenges along the way. I got something called cryptosporidium, which is a parasite that only usually affects people with immune deficiencies. So that was a big red flag to the fact that uh, I had some, something was being suppressed in my body in the immune system. Also, I was getting pretty, I mean, really severe arthritis to a point where my knees looked like these giant water balloons or something to a point where like I saw a family member around Washington, D.C. area when I was hiking through and she, when she saw me, her, you know, her jaw just dropped because she knew what I looked like before. And when she saw me with my knees like massively swollen, it was really 
it was, I mean, she called my mom right away. I was like, this is not a something's wrong, something's wrong. And I ended up tearing my Achilles in New Hampshire and I hiked through a torn Achilles and to finish the trail. But that was also a really big red flag. Like I was, I was walking every day, which is obviously a lot of stress on the body. Um, but the fact that I was able to tear or partially tear of an Achilles was also kind of this big red flag of like, um, my body wasn't being processing nutrients properly and, and healing properly the way it should. So Julianne, just for our listeners who are not familiar with the Appalachian Trail, can you share with us how long a hike that was, meaning both in distance and in time, and how your life yeah. began to change both physically and emotionally as you went through that physical journey? Yeah. So uh, the Appalachian Trail, I started in Georgia. It starts on, it starts on Mount Springer in Georgia. And then you hike all the way along the Appalachian Mountains to uh, Maine. It ends on Mount Katahdin in Maine. It's about 2,200 miles, give or take a, a certain amount every year, just based off how the trail changes. I did it by myself. So I started out by myself and I hiked along quickly meeting friends. If anyone knows me out there listening, they know I'm, uh, I tend to make friends pretty easily. So I hiked along with many different friend groups and there was, along with a, a understanding of my body, this awakening of understanding of my body and this intuition with my body, I was definitely also was able to make some really great revelations in terms of how my emotional status was affecting me and how my childhood trauma was affecting me. So there was definitely, when we asked the question of on this trail, did, was I physically sick or, or sick because of this emotional trauma, the answer was definitely both. How was your health declining? I mean, you, you gave us a little picture of what it was like to bump into a family member in Washington, D.C., but so when did you start, meaning what month, and, oh, and, yeah. and how did your health, it sounds like, continue to decline through the entirety of this journey through the Appalachian Trail? Oh my gosh, what a mess I was. So I started in April, April 13th. You know, at this point, I was able to get my arthritis under control with my diet. So I was able to walk. It was definitely going to be a big push for me to hike 13 to 20 miles every day. That's about, you know, that's about the range that you end up having to hike every day. And there's usually a rest day every week. So you end up hiking six days a week at a, at a nice slow pace, sometimes a fast one. And so I started out pretty strong, actually, and I was feeling really good about myself, besides for some, some bleeding blister issues, right? That, that was, that's still just, you know, surface trauma kind of stuff. And about midway through, I was starting to really feel, so this is about 1,000 miles in around Virginia, I was starting to really feel the detrimental effects of pushing myself on this hike, but also the detrimental effects of not being able to keep up all of the, you know, the, the little therapies that I was doing to, to keep my head above water when I had Lyme and all these symptoms, but unknowingly. So there are a lot of things I was doing at home, like taking Epsom salt baths or um, getting massage therapy and getting re regular chiropractic work in an effort to keep the symptoms from getting really bad. But on the Appalachian Trail, I didn't have any of that. So it was this also this time where now we're adding extra physio physiological stress to the body from all the hiking, but at the same time, my symptoms weren't being held back with the perfect diet and with all of these extra therapies. 
So it just kind of around Virginia, it, there was like this full force Lyme flare, you can say, where I was extremely tired. I didn't sleep most of the Appalachian Trail because insomnia was one of my major things. But at this point, I was just kind of like a walking zombie. How bad did it get for you when, when you oh. finally got to the end of the trail? I want everyone to just imagine me crawling through the woods and up the last mountain because that's what it was. I would never, I would never have been able to physically finish the trail if it hadn't been for the help of the friends I made on the trail. There were times where they carried my stuff and my equipment because of my torn Achilles, my, my arthritis in my knees, the physical deterioration of my body throughout this time. And like that last mountain that I hiked up, literally I was crawling up and over rocks on the way down. I had to have friends lower me down rocks. Like each step was like a friend helping me lower my, my feet gently down to the next rock, to the next rock and people carrying my backpack. And um, when I finished, I mean, I, I took a, it took me a good two months to be able to walk down the stairs again. So you, you finished this journey and you have now proven to yourself that you are not- There's something wrong. <laughs> you're not physically ill. You're, 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 I mean, you're not emotionally ill, you're physically ill. Yeah, well, because on the trail, I really came to recognize that I am an overachiever. This is part of my personality. I understand that I was putting a lot of stress on myself. That's not necessarily the whole answer, but I did realize I need to take steps to let go of some of the pressure on my own self-achievement, right? I'm not a failure. I, I finally learned I'm not a failure if I don't achieve my goals. And the Appalachian Trail is the epitome of this because I pushed my body to a point where it should have been, it should not have been pushed in order to achieve a goal. And I was able to finally step away from that and be like, that's not healthy actually. But regardless of that stress, I still realized there's something still physiologically wrong with me. This isn't all just stress and it's time for me to take this really seriously. Okay, so what do you do? You now, you know, beat yourself up physically and yeah. you, you achieve the goal of, of walking the AT and now you're home mm -hmm. and you've completed this spiritual journey and you have a better understanding of who you are. What did that allow you to do and how did that get you closer to a Lyme disease diagnosis? Well, what I ended up doing was I decided something was wrong. I needed to make a change. The change I decided, although I was wrong, not partially wrong, um, I decided I was going to start slowly detoxifying, that maybe there was some buildup of something or, you know, maybe, maybe there was a root cause here I had been missing. I was still not, I did not think this was Lyme disease. I want to be very clear. I, I was very convinced it wasn't actually. But you've already gotten past your worshiping of doctors after going through your nutrition course. And you've now gone through this very powerful spiritual journey on the Appalachian Trail. Why do you still believe that you don't have Lyme disease? And why are you, why are you resisting that? I, I don't know. I, I, have, I have no answer for you other than that in my 2016 self or 2015, 2016 self, I still believe there were other options to explore. And maybe that's a better way of putting it is, although Lyme disease was an option potentially, I thought, you know, there's autoimmune diseases, there's heavy metal toxicities. There's so many other avenues worth exploring. And in my mind, 
the doctor seemed so confident that Lyme disease couldn't be that I figured, well, might as well start exploring these other avenues. And how are you going to explore these avenues with the same doctor that you had been treating with? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, at this point, I wasn't really seeing him. And I was um, just kind of exploring, you, you know, the internet world of alternative medicines and alternative theories, and um, which can be a dangerous world in and of itself if you don't have proper guidance, which led me to do a detox, which my body was not ready for. And on day two of this detox, my bowels stopped working and they ultimately stopped working for eight months. Quickly into this issue, you know, two weeks in of my bowels not working and having to do enemas, I find a different doctor, right? Because my old doctor's response to anything bowel related was just take Miralax. And I decided this was finally the point where I was like, screw this, time for a new doctor. I ended up seeing a naturopath. Julian, just let's just, I just want to sort of go over this path with you. So you went from doctor number one who you now know was an unhealthy doctor and your relationship with this doctor was bordering on, on a domestic violence relationship. You then pivot over to Dr. Google and you start to take some steps through Dr. Google and that's now not helping you. In fact, it's making things worse. So you finally now uh, move to a third doctor and you're now working with a naturopathic doctor. And can you tell us why you moved to the third doctor and why you chose a naturopathic doctor? This was a specific doctor in our community who had a really good reputation with working on, how do I put it, uh, addressing the body as a whole, not just like one symptom, one body system, but really looking at the whole. And she had worked with my sister previously when, when my sister was younger. And so this was the doctor I already had who had a good reputation and uh, who had worked with a family member before. And this was a doctor I was ready to start listening to. And how did that change things for you? Oh, it changed everything dramatically. One of the first things she said to me after me giving her my spiel, she said, I believe you. I do think there's something wrong. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm, I'm here and we're going to be detectives and we're going to just keep going until we figure it out. And I, I mean, I, I just cried because it was the first time someone had ever said to me, like, I believe you. I think there is something wrong and, and not like victim blaming me. It was, it was finally someone address just addressing my needs do you think you would have been ready for that type of a relationship with a doctor if you hadn't gone on your spiritual journey through the Appalachian Trail that's a really good question I don't know I don't know how I would have responded if I had seen her right away I think at the time I did see her I was pretty desperate I mean when you stop pooping you get pretty desperate and, and maybe it's to that point of where I was driven so far, where I was finally able to even see myself that I actually really needed help and this wasn't just something I could do on my own. But Julian, this sounds like a very different type of a relationship, right? You, you, you had this, this very patriarchal interaction with your first doctor where you did what he told you to do and he was happy to tell you um, what to do. And you had some information that suggested to you from your own father that you weren't getting good advice but it seems to me that you just weren't emotionally ready to have a healthy relationship with a medical professional. But when you walk in to meet with your naturopath, it sounds to me that you're a different person and you're now ready to have a healthy relationship where you're assuming responsibility for your part of the relationship. Yeah. And I, you know, I think also my mentality going into it is that naturopaths were very different from an MD. 
So in my head, I think I was always willing to accept the help of a naturopath. It just was financially not feasible for me. But, you know, at the time when I did decide I needed to go see a naturopath, I was very open to, to that relationship. But I think I had always had been open to a relationship with a naturopath. So you now find a new doctor. And how does this, how does this work for you? And how close do you finally get to your diagnosis? Oh, my gosh. We get so close. Oh, I already feel like I know what you're going to say here. So she wanted to test for Lyme disease. And I said, no, because there's no way it could be Lyme because my old doctor told me over and over and over, it's not Lyme disease. So we go down a rabbit hole of testing thyroid and autoimmunity. And to be clear, everything was bad. My autoimmune uh, levels were the highest titers that you can even measure. Um, my thyroid was off. My vitamin D was really low. All my nutrients, everything was really low and really bad. And so this ended up being like a few months of us testing and her trying different thyroid supporting protocols or autoimmune supporting protocols until finally she was just like, Julianne, I really think this is Lyme. Please let me do a Lyme test. This is just like, this is what I see in so many people with, with chronic Lyme or people who have had Lyme for so long and treated that and it ends up affecting all these different systems of your body. So I agreed begrudgingly to let her do a Lyme test and I, I was CDC positive for Lyme. So now you have a diagnosis, the diagnosis that you didn't want from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, there must be some sort of denial here. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on. So how did everything change now that you finally got the diagnosis that you were terrified to get? Well, so it was really, I mean, it, it changed in the way where it was really relieving, where it was just like, oh my God, okay, this was not in my head clearly there was a big wave of anger at myself and at my old doctor, you know, both anger at my old doctor, obviously for not listening, but anger at myself for not advocating for myself, especially because I'm such a good advocate for my patients and my clients, but I was a terrible advocate for myself for three years. So now, now that you've, you've gone through the anger stage, are you now feeling liberated and are you ready to move forward with a treatment plan? Yes, I was ready to move forward. I mean, immediately. I mean, especially when you've been sick for so long, you're like, all right, well, let's get this going. The issue was that my naturopath at the time did not feel confident treating people with what was clearly neurological Lyme disease. So she wanted to refer me out to make sure that I got the right medications. She was worried about me having a seizure if, if, if we um, did the wrong antibiotic or something, just because at this point, the neurological symptoms were really, really bad. I had such an intense headache all the time that I felt like I, I, you know, I often fantasized about drilling nails into my head to release the pressure, right? Just to like drill like a hole in there because it was so bad. And I was struggling to even move parts of my body at this point, like to move my arm up was just this huge event almost. And so she was really nervous about treating me. So she wanted to refer me out. The issue is, is that the three people in our state she felt comfortable referring me out to all had six months to a year long waiting list. So this was obviously not good. What she ended up putting me on, uh, she was able to get me a referral, let's say for three months from, from that time period. I was diagnosed in May. She was able to get me a referral. It was like September, so maybe four months. So, but tell, tell us what's going on in your life at that time. Are you able to work? I was barely able to work. Um, I had, I had reduced my client load. I wasn't taking on more clients. I had, I was putting together a waiting list for when I thought I would get better. So I was probably only working probably 20 hours a week. 
And how um, was your social really, life? Oh, at this point, it was pretty bad. I, how I set up my day was I worked a little bit in the morning. I came home. I, and I was still living in my mother at the time because at this point, my health was going downhill so quickly. I was really scared about leaving, living on my own and kind of being unsupervised, like if something were to happen. So I'd come, I'd work in the morning for a couple hours. I'd go home. I would nap. or lay down and rest. I could never sleep, but I would just have to, I had to rest because I was so fatigued for three or four hours. And then I would go back to work and work to see a few more clients. And if I had energy, I might go out and about and, and rock climb. I was just starting to rock climb, but I was so fatigued doing that, but I just, I I just wanted to move. Um, But most of the time after work, I just had to come right home and rest. I couldn't watch movies. I couldn't read. I just had to lay in bed and rest. So you, you worked a few hours a day. You tried to pursue some outlets. You worked another couple of hours a day and then you crashed and slept or rested because you couldn't sleep for the rest of the day. Yeah, I couldn't sleep. No, I, there was five years where I don't think I, I mean, I think, I don't think I slept more than two hours a night. Your naturopath now tells you that she can help you, but you're going to have to wait three months before a referral would be available to you. So what, what takes place during that three-month window? Well, I decided if I felt like I was going to feel like death, I might as well feel like death out on a road trip with my um, new boyfriend at the time. And she put me on an herbal protocol, but hoping to at least kind of keep it back. And at the same time, I mean, we were calling throughout this entire three months, we were calling these doctors and be like, do you have a cancellation yet? Do you have a cancellation yet? Like we were really on top of, on top of this. And so at this time, so then my, my boyfriend and I, we went on this road trip around America about a month and a half into this road trip. And this was, I say this road trip and it sounds like this big exhausting thing. We went to these national parks and I did a lot of just sitting in these national national parks, which was way better than just sitting depressed in my bed at home because I can't do anything. And we did very gentle, easy rock climbs and just kind of gentle things to get my mind off of this, this feeling of like impending doom that, and you know, this feeling that my body was really sick and there was an infection spreading my body completely uncontrolled. You go on another journey and you and your new boyfriend uh, are, are going to national parks. And how does that how does that work for you? Are you getting, are you, are you getting sicker? Or are you getting? Oh, I'm definitely better? getting sicker. No, we had to cut our road trip short very quickly because there was a day in Colorado. I was driving through Denver on the highway and I suddenly couldn't process speeds anymore. I'm on the, I'm driving on the highway, you know, probably like an eight lane highway in the middle of traffic. And I could see but I could not process any of the things happening around me. So I quickly, I get, I pull over and I get off on the next exit and I could not drive again. And I'm still struggling to drive to this day because at some point there was a, a brain injury that occurred during that road trip from the, from the infection. I feel like I'm watching a movie and I'm watching the train about to crash and it's just painful. And it to- just keeps crashing. Like the crash just keeps happening. That's the thing. So where, um, where do you go from here? You, you're now stuck on the side of a road. You can't drive. Chronic Lyme disease is just destroying your body. What, what happens from here? So we drive home or my boyfriend. He drives, drives home. home. <laughs> he drives home. And I, I am, you know, I want people to imagine I'm sitting in the passenger seat, silently crying the whole drive home. 
you know, from the Midwest to New Hampshire, just feeling like a complete, uh, you know, just feeling trapped because I clearly needed treatment right away, but the practitioner I was seeing was too scared to give it to me. The practitioners I wanted to see couldn't see me yet. I didn't trust going back to my primary care doctor. I felt really trapped and I didn't know what to do. And at this point I was so sick, you know, by the time we got home, I was literally just laying in bed all day. That was just what I did. I just had to rest all day. Finally, I, because I knew I needed antibiotics right away. There was, it was clear I couldn't wait any longer to see a practitioner. I went to go back and see my primary care doctor. This is the same man who had originally denied me, but I was hoping now that I had the CDC positive test, he would at least be able to at least give me an antibiotic that I could get on before I could see a Lyme specialist. And how did the man who you were in this love-hate relationship with respond to your return to his practice? Well, he yelled at me for not seeing him about these issues, which I can understand to a degree um, because obviously if I, you know, if, if you are the primary care doctor of someone and you didn't realize they had Lyme disease, let alone had been untreated for Lyme disease, obviously you're going to be a little upset. And he was never quite able to understand my point of view where I was just like, well, I didn't feel comfortable coming to you about this because I didn't think you were going to hear me because, and I told him, I was like, I've been complaining about these things for three or four years at this point and you, you weren't listening to me. But, and I tried to make it really clear to him at the time. I was like, I'm really open to you being a part of my treatment team. Um, I want to know what you would do now. This is the diagnosis, but I'm, it's also really important to me that I have other perspectives as well because I didn't trust him and um, I got yelled at and was pretty much he was like you either do everything I say or I'm not going to work with you and how did you respond to that I got a new primary care doctor now did he offer you antibiotics before you moved on to your new primary care physician yeah so he immediately wanted me to go on IV antibiotics which is good advice. That is great advice. But you need to remember at that time, I really didn't trust this man and was really afraid of trusting this man. And I had never even been on the oral antibiotic. So in my mind, that was like jumping to the most invasive treatment before we tried some, some gentler options. But of course, your, your Lyme disease at this point was chronic. So the oral antibiotics, yeah, right. So the oral antibiotics, although they would have been a more gentle approach, probably would not have been effective because you were no longer in the acute phase. Right. I did end up being able to see my Lyme specialist shortly after that meeting, and she immediately put me on a double, two different oral antibiotics, and that's where we finally, finally began treating this. And how did that work for you? How did the antibiotic protocol that you were taking with the new doctor help you, uh, and how did it progress? Oh, well, first of all, it was amazing. Within 24 hours, I started pooping again. It was this incredible thing that happened. It was like so clearly my nerves and the gastrointestinal, <laughs> the whole system was being paralyzed by the infection. And within 24 hours, it was like, the, you know, my headache lifted. This headache, this pounding headache lifted. It was just like, poof. And um, my bowels continued to work again. And I got way less tired. And my whole body was able to move around again. It was, it was, so clear that that was just all I needed was some antibiotics at first. And so we did 
six months of these double antibiotics. What were the antibiotics um, that you were taking, Julian? It was minocycline and revampirin. And so the reason why I was told we were doing minocycline instead of doxycycline was because the minocycline was better at crossing that blood-brain barrier. So if, if it, I mean, it was clearly a neurological infection. And so um, the Lyme specialist thought that that would be a good first try before moving on to something like a pick Lyme. And I was responding really, really, really well. So after six months, we took me off the antibiotics. At this point, I was back to 95%. I was able to drive again. I was able to drive on the highway again, not long distance, but I was getting my confidence back and getting my visual perception back. And after, so, so they took me off of the antibiotics for six months. I went a whole summer off of the antibiotics doing really well. And then I started to crash. Now, during that summer after the antibiotics, were, were there any medicinal or herbal support offered to you? Oh, yeah. So I was definitely on a lot of herbal supports and supplements to kind of just keep the, keep the body up. We were doing a lot of uh, gentle detox work because I think ultimately this comes down to the big question. Yes, we might get chronic Lyme disease, but I think sometimes there are root causes behind what may make us more susceptible to, to an infection or what may, may make us more susceptible to coming out of remission and having a flare up. And so we were definitely addressing the other nutritional weaknesses and kind of um, toxic burden loads of my body very gently to kind of keep, keep working on the issue to make sure it didn't come back. So Julian, where were you professionally at that time? Were you able to work? Yeah, I started working again. I mean, I, I had worked through all of this, except for that summer I took off to, to go on the road. And I, I had worked, um, went back to full-time, was working, was building up my practice again. Um, I was working through the summer, working in the NICU with babies who were going withdrawal from opioids and, you know, all these substances. And I loved my work. It was really important to me. And so you can imagine that when I started to crash again that fall, how much that hit emotionally to know that although I felt better for a short time, it wasn't a complete cure. Now, I, I want to ask about the road trip again that you went on yeah. that resulted in the, in the crash. You, you in, indicated that you had a new romantic relationship at that time. Did that relationship survive the road trip and the illness that you had developed? Yeah. So this is, I think you know, when we talk about whether or not uh, humanity is good, I think I was dating a boy at the time. I had just met him just when everything was starting to go down really bad at the beginning of 2016. I had just seen my new uh, naturopath and he's only ever known me, you know, in fighting this illness and we're married to this day. Right. So, so Congratulations. Just, yeah, I know. It's really great, but it's amazing how this man met me at my worst and has seen me through my greatest ups and downs in my life. And we have just grown closer because of that. I want you to know that your experience is a unique experience. Uh, what we're finding with most of our podcast guests is that romance doesn't survive Lyme. Uh, we had a wonderful podcast episode where we interviewed a successful couple named uh, Will and Natalie, and uh, they had this really cool clinical co-pilot description of their relationship. Uh, but they were right, they were actually the, the exception rather than the rule, and, and I want to congratulate you and, and your husband for being able to survive in your relationship through all of these challenges. 
I think the biggest successful piece for us was our communication throughout everything and being really clear that when I'm feeling well, unwell or whatever, it wasn't his fault, right? So sometimes sometimes we get kind of cranky when we're not feeling very good or emotionally, like it's really classic. We can have these roller coasters of emotions. And my husband, Jay, has been very good about communicating through that when he's feeling like I am taking something out on him or if I am feeling, I don't know, like aggression or, or something towards him, but not be, not because of him, but just, just because of everything. And we've just been really good at communicating through all of those issues. How did the crash impact you in every part of your life, socially, professionally, emotionally? How are you, how are you now responding to the second crash? So it is emotionally, emotionally, it was way worse than the first time because here you are, you just think you made it through the hardest ordeal of your life only to realize it's not done and you have to keep going. I like to equate this to when you think, you know, I'm, I was a runner, right? So when you think you're running uh, a 5k, like you, you sign up for a 5k, you didn't really want to do it, but like, okay, it's a 5k, you'll get through it. But then at the end of the 5k, someone tells, you, you know, it's, it's actually a 10k you have to keep going. And then at the end of the 10K, someone goes, actually, no, it's a marathon. At the end of the marathon, they're like, no, actually, it's 100 miles. And at the end of the 100 miles, they're like, okay, no, it just keeps going and going and going. There's no end to this race. And you, but the trick is, is that you can't stop running the race. To stop running the race means you die. And so that emotional state hit me when I started to have that second crash that like, oh, it's not done. And I have to keep running. There's no option of just stopping. Now, what impact did this new emotional revelation have on your relationship with your husband? Well, because at the time, he was still just my boyfriend of a year, maybe a year and a half or something. And through, through this entire period, he has been the best support there ever could be. Um, and so, again, he, you know, he, he's so good at just being like, okay, you know, we're rock climbers, we're hikers, we're kind of people where you get stuck in life or death situations. And the only way to get out is to get out. And so that's definitely both of our mentality throughout all this. And his was the same. He was like, okay, well, now let's just find next steps. So how did this impact you professionally? Were you, were you able to work? Um, yeah, at this point, I was still working. I was still able to work. I was put back on some oral antibiotics, which kept me at a functional level. My immune system was failing rapidly, though. You know, I would have multiple strep infections within a year. I'd have multi, I'd have four month long sinus infection. Like things were clearly starting to fail at a more progressive level, but I was still able, I mean, I, I pushed myself to work. It was not easy and it was probably not good for me, but at this point work was so much of my identity. I, I felt like I was still, I was still kind of winning the line battle if I was still able to work. So you, you're now, you're now prescribed a, a new antibiotic protocol and is it helping you to get better or or you're not getting better it was maintaining function it definitely wasn't how do i put this i was able to maintain basic function but it was clear i wasn't progressing i um, my driving ability kind of stopped again i was i had a visual reaction delay so i could drive up to 30 or 40 miles per hour but after that i struggled to process the road so I always can, I always gauge where I'm at neurologically based off of how fast I can drive safely. And so 
Whereas when I was in that remission period, I was driving 70, 80 miles per hour again. Now I was back to 40 to 50 miles per hour being the comfort zone. Later on in this journey, I've seen a neurologist and he made it very clear. I have a visual reaction delay. So my, I can see fine. Like if you were to test my eyes, they'd be like, okay, well, you know, your eyes are working. What's happening is that my brain is not connecting the vision. It's not processing the vision fast enough. And so if you were to be standing right in front of me, I wouldn't be noticing any difference. But when we get in a car and we start pushing that, that visual reaction timing, um, that, that processing, that's when it becomes really clear. So at 50 miles per hour to you, you may see that as just, okay, I'm driving, I'm still in control. At 50 miles per hour, I feel like I'm in a rocket ship. So your second crash now results in you having challenges driving. What other challenges were presented and how were you trying to treat those challenges? Well, at this point, I'm starting to get arthritis again. Um, that's starting to creep in really badly where my mobility is being limited. So keep in mind, I've hiked the whole Appalachian Trail, but this was to a point now where I was really struggling to walk to the grocery store from the parking lot or even walk down the hall, like, or get, go get the mail from the mailbox. Like things were starting to become really progressively difficult. At this point, we started testing for other potential factors beyond the line that might be making things worse. Um, we knew I was really autoimmune positive, And although we knew that could be the line, maybe we thought maybe there is some sort of autoimmune disease going on there. And when you started to undergo all of that additional testing, did you discover anything that was not Lyme related? Yeah. And this is one thing I really recommend to everyone undergoing this journey is don't stop at just Lyme. I mean, Lyme is definitely probably the major factor, but there may be other things going on that may allow the Lyme to come out of remission. So I had lead poisoning. And how did you discover the lead poisoning? Well, we did a heavy metal test, a urine test. Um, ironically, I don't recommend people do it with their hair because on my hair, my hair said I was all totally fine. But uh, my urine made it really clear that uh, I actually had quite a bit of heavy metals that I was extremely high in, all ones that are considered neurotoxins. And after you discovered that you were, you were suffering from the metal challenges, how did that change your treatment protocol and what impact did the changes have on your Lyme journey? Yeah. So at this point, we shifted our focus. I went on, I continued to go on and off of antibiotics for the next couple of years, just based off of how severe it was getting. Um, but at this point, antibiotics clearly weren't pulling it all the way back. So we did this big year. I would say we spent a solid year working on a, a heavy metal protocol of slowly pulling them out. There was some EDTA in there. There was some um, IV glutathione. There was a lot of gentle herbal kind of pulling things. And it was, it was working to an extent where my levels were coming down. And, and some of my symptoms were gone. Um, I haven't even men mentioned this symptom yet, but this was probably a really incapacitating one. I had severe nerve pain throughout my whole body to a point where, although I was already had insomnia, it made it impossible to even like lay in bed because of the nerve pain and pressure that would happen through my arms and legs. And I had been through years of physical therapy to try to at least help with, with the muscle tension and the cramping that was occurring because of this nerve pain. And that helped. I mean, the heavy metal detoxification was definitely helping with the nerve pain. So I thought it was one of those like, okay, 
stay the course. This is all I'll need to do and I'll be fine. And I'll just slowly, gradually heal. And how did that work? Well, it was working. And then all of a sudden this May, I was still clearly having some neurological issues. Can I backtrack us for a second to help people understand this moment? I want to, I want to bring us to June, 2018. I was having, you know, my third or fourth relapse at this point, right? Where it was just clearly getting worse and worse each cycle. And I was having such extreme symptoms, heart palpitations, all of these things that I didn't even know if I was going to, like every night I went to bed, I just didn't know if I was going to wake up in the morning, if I slept at all. And my boyfriend and I went to go to Ecuador to uh, do an ayahuasca trip with a shaman that we had found that we liked and respected. And this was kind of my effort and this wasn't necessarily to be healed, but maybe to gain a bigger perspective on something maybe I wasn't seeing. During this ayahuasca trip, I saw it really helped me come to terms with the fact that Lyme disease was part of my life, but it wasn't my defining factor and that it was going to be okay. I was on the right path. I had to just keep advocating for myself and, and I would, it, it would, it would eventually be okay. Right. So I had this huge sense of relief. Um, whereas before I was definitely had not, I would never say I was suicidal, but I was really afraid this was going to be the end of me. This Lyme disease was going to be my final chapter. And then January of 2019, I was meditating on my back porch and completely sober, right? Other than maybe the antibiotics in my system. And I just opened up because I was, you know, I was clearly still crashing. No matter all this, you know, lead detox and everything I was doing, there was still, we didn't have all the answers yet. It was clear. And so I just kind of opened up and I was like, I need some universal guidance here. And I am the kind of person who very much really likes medical science and really likes all these things, but I'm also super open-minded, skeptical, but open-minded to who knows what other intuition or, or knowledge there is out there. And so during this completely sober meditation, I was shown, I don't know how to say it, um, a brain injury that I had that I had not yet been diagnosed with. And also I was, I was told very clearly that there was something wrong with my, my amino acids. That was, that was like the direct word that I saw and heard. So directly after this, my blood was tested. My amino acids were off and were continuing to show off for months after this. And I was able to get an MRI and I, well, I asked for an MRI. This was like when I was finally like, no, I need an MRI. This, all of this vision issues can't just be anxiety and in my head. And that's when we saw that I actually had a brain injury from all of this. Now, is the brain injury related to your Lyme disease or is it a separate unrelated injury? We don't know. Our, you know, even neurologist's best assumption is that it's caused by the neurological Lyme infection. I have something called gliosis in my brain, which is a common pattern of the Lyme, the Borrelia bacteria in the brain. It in, it infects the glial cells, which are the cells that help protect the nerves. So after the MRI, did you begin a treatment protocol to deal with the, is it called gliosis? Yes. So the MRI was the big catalyst. 
directly after the MRI or around the period of the MRI, I would say the week after the MRI, I experienced the greatest crash I had ever felt in symptoms where I had gone from barely functioning to absolutely no longer functional, had to stop working, had to, I mean, could barely move neurologically and cognitively was going downhill so quickly I could barely hold a conversation. Things were really escalating. And this is when we added the neurologist onto our team. We added an immunologist onto our team. And we started really diving deep to figure out what was happening here. Because it was, it was definitely a clear, like, the neurologist told me when I saw him, he, you know, he sat me down. Because at this point, I still wanted to go back to work. And he was like, Julianne, your brain is turning to stew. You have to accept that you need to pull back from all these responsibilities you think you have. Or like, you're, you're not going to make it. And what treatment recommendations did your doctors make for your brain that was now turning to stew? Yeah. Oh, what a mess this is. So within all the testing, so basically we did a whole summer of extreme testing while I'm on oral antibiotics, at least to like help keep me from literally dying. We found out that my immune system was clinically no longer functioning, right? So most people make antibodies to bacteria. My body was no longer even making antibodies anymore. It's something called hypogammaglobulinemia. And so right then and there, this was July, 2019, July, they knew I needed something called IVIG. And this is where the whole insurance mess comes in is because I had to go through months of subsequent testing to like really prove that I needed IVIG. So um, we knew I needed that. We knew I needed pick line antibiotics at this point. It was very clear that I had a brain, an, an ongoing brain infection, and uh, we had to really up the level of intervention that we were doing. But this all became massively delayed because of insurance. So your insurance carrier was denying treatment despite all of the objective diagnostic evidence that you needed treatment? They weren't necessarily denying treatment. But in order to, so for IVIG, in order to apply for IVIG, you have to go through something called a vaccine challenge. And so from the first blood test, which is July, that we found out that I had something called hypogammaglobulinemia, by the time it took me to see an immunologist, because the immunologist has to be the one to the prescribe the IVIG for hypogammaglobulinemia, so the time it took me to finally see him because of all the, the delays in our, our medical care system, and then the extra delay because I had to do this vaccine challenge, I didn't actually get the IVIG until November. Oh, December, actually. December. So what was your medical condition like during this window of time where you had to go through the, through the challenge? I was literally, and still pretty much am, this hermit stuck at home in bed most of the time resting, um, sometimes barely even to able to make myself food or doing simple tasks like putting the dishes away, going down to get the mail. I mean, I, I was really severely limited at this point while I'm waiting for all of these medical interventions to get approved. Did the insurance carrier finally approve your... Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. They approved the PICC line and they approved uh, the IVIG. The thing, and many of your listeners will know this, is um, depending on where you are and what insurance company you have, usually only get approved for one month of PICLINE antibiotics use. And there's a lot of debate in the community around how, you know, how long you might need PICLINE antibiotics. 
uh, my Lyme specialist thought I was definitely going to need more than one month. So I'm on my third month right now. Those last two months do come out of pocket, which is obviously a big financial burden as well, but something I really recommend everyone prepare for in case it goes that way. Like have like a Lyme savings fund just in case. You were able to you were able to get one month of your IV antibiotics paid for by insurance, and now two months mm-hmm. you have had to self fund. How has that helped you? Have you have you improved during the course of the last three months? It's pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing. I mean, first of all, I've been able to have a conversation with you, and I only lost you once, right? Like throughout our conversation, I have only lost it pretty significantly once. I was able to start moving around again without my hips locking. So I'm someone who I've always, I've always loved walking in the woods. It's been a huge therapeutic, a a good therapy for me. It's just kind of walking in the woods, help me calm down. But I had to stop walking in the woods because my hips and my ankles and my knees would lock. They would just freeze and lock randomly so frequently, sometimes 30 times a day that I couldn't go into the woods by myself because I didn't know if I was going to get literally locked in place out there. It, you know, it happened in the parking lot. Sometimes I would get locked behind cars in place and not able to move. And so within a couple of days of the IV antibiotics, nothing locked anymore, right? Like maybe I get, start getting like a stiff joint, but not a locked joint. Cognitively, I was able to follow along a lot more. I was able to read again, like read emails fluently and be able to read books again. And then within the first month of the antibiotics, IV antibiotics, we started the IVIG at the same time. And that was like a rocket booster in terms of healing. Like I remember finally being able to stand up long enough to do the dishes. Like that was a huge, that was a huge deal for me. So what's the plan moving forward? The plan moving forward at this point is we are continuing on the IV antibiotics, probably another month. I'm at a point now where... I'm maybe 60 to 70% there. I'm able to drive around town a little bit again. There was a time, I mean, during this whole waiting period from this fall, I wasn't driving anywhere. Like I was definitely just in bed resting. Couldn't even drive if I had to, if there was an emergency because just the world was spinning so much and because my vision delay was so bad. I'm at a point now where I'm able to drive around little bit. They want to continue the IV antibiotics and the IVIG into the point where cognitively it's clear. I'm like back to, you know, 90, 95%, um, meaning I can hopefully would be able to drive on the highway without any sort of cognitive processing issues. And then potentially IVIG just for the year, but the immunologist thinks I might have the genetic variation of the hypogammaglobulinemia, meaning potentially IVIG the rest of my life in order to keep either the Lyme infection in remission or, and other infections from, from occurring. So Julianne, if you had to look back at this very challenging journey that you've been on, what would you recommend that folks use to shortcut their challenges so that they wouldn't have to take as long a journey as you have? And so I think my story is a really clear example of why you need to be a really solid advocate for yourself and trust your body more than any doctor's word or opinion out there. And I think what could have at least taken four years off my healing journey was if I had really insisted and put my foot down, like, no, I want a Lyme disease test. And it may not have been positive, and I understand that, but um, really keep fighting for yourself. And even if 
even if like you're, you're healing, but you're not all the way where you want to be, keep digging, keep advocating for yourself, keep investigating to make sure that you have learned everything you can about your scenario. Everyone's case is totally different, but it's really important that you get all the data that you can so you can make the best calls that you can. So you're, you're essentially arguing that everyone has to demand or expect the right to be healthy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and don't settle with 70 or 80%. Like keep going until you can figure out all of the factors. If we had known I had had the brain injury three years ago, we could have started addressing that or we put, or I would have been more open to going on IV antibiotics right away. But, you know, I didn't keep asking the question. People just told me it was anxiety, but I didn't keep asking why. And I think it's just really important to just keep digging till you get all the data. So Julianne, I, I have one last set of questions and that relates to how this journey has been a blessing for you. How has your life been made more rich or better as a consequence of having gone on your Lyme disease journey? Okay, there are two things that I really wanna make sure I share. One is that I learned how to be vulnerable. I know as I had told you this earlier, for me, I saw being able to work as like, like me still winning the fight. And there came a time where I had to give up my entire music therapy practice. That was, you know, th this past May when I really crashed and I had to give up all of my clients and I had to give up everything I had used to define me from that point on. And I had to stop all of that. And not only that, but I had to ask all of my friends and my family for help to get me through this because we're at a point where I couldn't even get to my doctor's appointments. I couldn't even, I could barely get myself out of bed. I could barely feed myself. And that was really difficult to ask for help and to learn that I, I needed it. And I re like the only way I was going to survive was if I accepted that help. And so I think in terms of spiritually, like coming to who I am as a human, I was able to learn that I am a human who can accept help, who needs help, and who is, it's okay. It's okay to need help. Because, you know, just in the same, I, you know, I've been supporting people my entire life with my career in music therapy, and it was so hard for me to, in exchange, learn how to accept that same help that I had been giving my whole life. And so I think that was the best balancing piece I've learned. And what was the second piece? Because I'm excited to hear that as well. Okay, so the second piece was my career. As I was getting sick, I realized I may not be able to work in the same capacity I have been able to, meaning it's really exhausting for me to see clients all day in a one-on-one -on -one capacity, especially because we're talking about clients with extremely high needs. So it forced me to be really creative about how I wanted to continue to work in this world and share my skills and share, share my talents as a music therapist. And so I ended up publishing an album so I, I, I recorded this album as I'm fighting a Lyme infection, multiple sinus infections, and strep infections. And I was in my intention with this album was just to share it with my local community in case I couldn't work, you know, still be able to give them tools and teach them how to use these tools. But it ended up spreading nationally and is still and now is internationally spreading and getting featured all around in, in the kids entertainment world. And so even though I've had to stop practicing, I'm able to have the biggest impact I've ever had. And 
one of the only reasons why I'm able to continue. So right now I'm recording my second album and I'm really only able to do that because I'm literally stuck at home. You know, what I can do from bed is I can write lyrics and I can write melodies and I can write songs. That's something that's allowing me to still be productive. So it's really interesting because I am health wise, just getting over my lowest health moments of my life. But career wise, I am the most successful I've ever been if you're looking at impact. So in that way, it's being sick has given me this incredible gift where I've been able to put this time and energy I'm not able to put into one-on-one clients into creating this album that can have an international impact. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Julianne Hartley. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Julianne Hartley, please visit her Instagram at Miss Julie Ann Music. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get you automatic episodes of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for commenting on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.